Well, good morning. My name is Jack. I'm uh, the lead pastor here for Bethany Northeast, and I um, want to once again welcome our visitors and guests this morning. Glad you're here. I'm uh, looking forward to meeting you if you are new to our community, so don't be afraid to approach me. Sometimes I won't get to you because there's, there's somebody who will grab me, and I'm just kidding, giving Tom a hard time, but I'd love to talk to new people as well. Um, this morning, we're beginning just a short three-week series that we've been doing the last couple falls, uh, last couple Septembers. Um, if you looked on your bulletin, it's, it says, uh, gather, grow, go, or something like that. And the point of this is, is kind of as we go into the fall to, to reflect on the values of our church, or you might even say any church for that matter, what does it make, what does it mean to be a church? Um, things that if you're gathered in any church must be kind of present and active and at work in the life of the church. Some people have called this the marks of the church. Uh, that's just fancy language for things that are essentials uh, for a gathered community of Christ followers to be Christian. So it's, it's possible, I guess, to be a gathered community of Christ followers and not be a church. Um, and so these are unique things about churches. Some have said there's nine of these. Some say four we're saying three. So, and actually, you'll notice there's a little triangle on the front of your bulletin, and that's actually not just a fancy little graphic design. The reason um, we've chosen three at Bethany, kind of three dimensions, is that uh, it's an equilateral triangle, gather, grow, go, you'll see. Uh, The idea here is that we're called to live our lives in balance, and so that triangle is intentionally balanced on every side. Um, and, And it's true in our spiritual lives, for sure. It's true in almost every dimension of life. Just think of this in terms of diet, sleep, and exercise for a moment. Uh, I love to ride my bike um, quite a bit. And so um, if I just decide after a long bike ride to eat three pints of Ben and Jerry's, you know, and even if I get a good eight hours sleep, that's probably going to negate the bike ride I went on, right? Or let's say you're not really into exercise, so you're just into sleeping and eating well. That might not get you to the optimal level of physical fitness, if you get what I'm saying. So there's, there needs to be a balance in these things. And, and so my question for us, I mean, it's true in our environment. We see imbalance in the environment all around us. And so we're seeing these catastrophic, massive sort of shifts in the environment because we've taken advantage of certain aspects, species dying, deforestation, all that kind of stuff. So life out of balance is not a good thing. So my question to you is, why would it be any different in your spiritual life? And it it wouldn't be, is is the answer. Um, Balance is key. Without a real balanced approach to our spiritual lives, to our church life, um, we're not only not impacting the world and having the greatest impact we could, we're potentially unhealthy and at risk. Uh, I mean, if you've ever driven a car, for example— with the tires out of balance, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be a bumpy ride at first, and then one of the wheels is going to fall off, fall off and you're going to be off the edge of a cliff. Happy Sunday. Yeah, so there you go. Just went there. So we're created to be th- these balanced three-dimensional beings, and if one dimensional dimension of our lives is suppressed, is missing, we don't work as we should. So we need to kind of exercise in this way. So we're going to look at these three things over the next three weeks. And kind of asking questions each week, each week about each of these dimensions, the gather, the go, the growth. So gathering being kind of what we do as we're together as a community worshiping, uh, going, kind of the sense of mission that we're called to be on, and then growth in the third week around kind of discipleship and groups and things like that. So and we'll have opportunities to kind of update you in the weeks, kind of things that we think are on our hearts. Our leadership team have been uh, kind of praying around 
how this might look. So gather today. Three basic questions about why we gather, okay? And you'll see those in the bulletin. One of them changed uh, as I was writing this. So we're going to look at um, who gathered, how they gathered, and we're looking at Acts chapter 2, by the way. So if, you're, if you have a Bible, you can pull that out. Acts 2, kind of 37 to 47. Who gathered, um, how they gathered, and then finally we're going to change that third question, why they gathered. I was reading a book a few years ago by Simon Sisek. Anybody know who this guy is? He says, don't tell them what, tell them why. So I was like, probably should, probably should try that out. So we're going to talk about why they gathered. Okay. So first, who gathered? Who are these people? If you kind of look at Acts 2, 44 and 46, look at who these people are. Um, actually, you have to look earlier in the chap- chapter. Um, these are people in that passage we just read that, that clearly can't get enough of each other. So they're, they're together. They're, they're in each other's homes all the time. They don't just come to church on Sunday. They're breaking bread. They're rejoicing. They're glad to be together. Um, there's a great sense of God's presence with them. So that the, the God's doing things. There's awe. There's intimacy. So who are these people that just can't get enough of each other? That they're all, like, just imagine that was your experience at this church. Like, you leave here. You just can't wait to come back the next Sunday. You, you're, all, you're getting everybody's phone numbers. You just want to be together all the time. That's kind of what this church was about. Uh, to understand who they were, you have to kind of trace back in the story a little bit. So at the very beginning of Acts 2, I'm just going to lay this out because it's really important. There's probably nothing we as a, as a country, as a people, need to hear more than this right now. So listen in. Um, because we're, we're deeply divided politically, religiously, ethnically. We need to hear this. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we're told this crowd was comprised of Jews of deep faith from every nation of the world. Okay? And that's super significant. And the reason that's important is the word nation there is the Greek word ethnos. And it's the word we get ethnicity from. And so people from all over the known world, every ethnicity, are gathered in this community. Um, you know, as, as, as Revelation says, every tribe, tongue, and nation is there. And here's how this looked. If you read past verse 5, it says uh, later in the passage that this group was composed of Jews and Gentiles, not just Jewish people, uh, Parthians, Medes, Egyptians, Libyans, Arabs, Cretans, and Romans, amongst others that I can't pronounce. So this is a way of saying, here's the shorthand, this is, this is people from Europe, modern-day Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, Okay which is to say every single kind of person in the known world at that time um, was present. So there's incredible and rich diversity in the first church, ethnically, uh, culturally. And here's the thing that makes this so important for us, okay? Many people, we're gonna, if you just do a little man-on-the-street conversation with somebody, ask them about religion, are going to tell you that religion is just an expression of culture, okay? Religion is an expression of culture. If you're Italian, what are you? You're Catholic. If you're an Israeli, you're what? You're Jewish. If you're an Arab, you're Muslim. If you're Korean, you're Presbyterian. Um, If you're from Utah, you're what? Yep. And if you're from Minnesota, you're what? You're a Lutheran. Yes, some of you are from Minnesota. If you're from Seattle, what are you? You're nothing, right? That's actually true. You're independent. You're whatever you are. I'm so grateful you're here. I'm not sure what we are. The point is, religion is an expression of culture. That's what people will tell you. But here's the deal. That, was, that couldn't be the case here in Acts 2 because every possible culture, what the Bible's telling us, every possible culture, every ethnicity, every class, every kind of person you can imagine was represented in this crowd gathered together in worship. They're worshiping. So here's what's so astonishing. These are people who had seemingly nothing in common with each other. They didn't have a shared language, shared culture, 
as a group, they didn't have a common identity or personality. They didn't have any political group they were part of, no common temperament. They didn't have a common class. They were just very different. And yet they're immediately, listen to this, in each other's homes every night. They could not get enough of each other. What's up with that? Uh, Did you notice in verse 44, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. So do you know why that's so strong? Look at where they met. They met everywhere. Everywhere. So they were in the temple, like we have, and then they're in each other's homes. And when did they meet? Constantly. Like, they're relentlessly meeting, continuously meeting. They just, like I said, can't get enough of each other. So they're coming together all the time, every day on a daily basis. They're eating, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're going deep into each other's stories, just life on life, if you can imagine this. That's what makes this first church so remarkable, that they were unconditionally together. They're hungry. They're so hungry for each other. And that way, the word, they, the word together, if you think of this, it wasn't so much what they did as much as what they were, okay? Big point here. Uh, they were together. They met together. They did some things together. But ultimately, they were together. They were, they were each other, if this makes sense to you. They were, there was a whole new mode of existence that God is creating here. Uh, some might, you know, like they weren't, they were, they were a bunch of different types of people, and now they were one people, if you get what I'm saying here. Now, my, some might say that's an exaggeration. Like, we have this refrigerator magnet. Uh, it's this quote by George Burns. Some of you don't even have a clue who George Burns is. But we have this magnet, and it says, Happiness, Elizabeth's magnet from when she was, I don't know how old you were, when, but I love this magnet, my favorite magnet. Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. So uh, you, most of us, that's our experience. There's no way, this is an exaggeration, there's no way this happened. People, people don't get together like this anymore. One hour on Sunday, I'm good. Y'all are good. Love you. See you next week. That's kind of how we approach things. But I'm just telling you right now, this is history. This actually happened. Kenneth Scott Latourette, he was a professor at Yale for years and years. Really well-regarded scholar, has this seven-volume history of the church. Did you ever have to read this thing? Seven, uh, good, thank you. That's good. It's, it's the seven-volume history of Christianity. I think anybody in my era, I'm only a few years older than Silas, but was required to read this. So seven volumes of church history. It's called A History of the Expansion of Christianity. And it's good stuff. But he goes on to observe that there were hundreds of religions competing in that ancient world for ascendancy. Like there was hundreds of religions. And we, we have a very pluralistic city like Seattle. So there's hundreds of different types of things that are competing for people's time. And so why amongst all of those things in the ancient world, the philosophies in the Greco-Roman world, in, especially in spite of such severe opposition, uh, there's persecution. Why did Christianity triumph? Why, like, what accounts for the fact that this obscure Jewish sect that had little to no influential backing, you know, in the government, um, had no, really no money, so to speak, whose founder was crucified? Like, what, <laughs> what, like, what come, like, how can they become the most powerful religious force in human history? Like, how did that happen? How did they triumph? And what Latchrat argues if, in these seven volumes, in one place he says, it's this, the principal reason for Christianity's success is its absolute inclusiveness. At the, if you read the Acts 2, absolute inclusiveness. Everybody, doesn't matter who you were, pagan, Jewish, African, European, Asian, it doesn't matter. You are invited to the table. You have a part in this story. 
every ethnic group, every type of person. The pagan deities, for example, Latour would say, often confine themselves to certain regions, certain nations. So they were very nationalistic. Even in its, its height, the Jewish faith was, uh, you had to go to Israel. It, it was bound, it, the boundary became the center of their faith, the temple. Uh, the Greco-Roman philosophers, they were only, they only appealed to the educated and the elites. In fact, one of the critiques that they leveled against Christianity was that it appealed to the uneducated. It was just so simple. Jesus was always talking about being coming like a child, so it's just child's play. How could anybody want to follow that? It's not like mental, it's not like educated enough. Um, so Christianity appealed to people who were not educated, educated men, women, like treated them as equals in the early church, if you can believe this. Uh, no other religion on planet earth at that time did this. Nothing, no, none. Became one community, deeply connected, deeply involved. Um, and, and here's why, okay? One of my favorite commentaries on the book of Acts is by this guy named Willie, uh, Willie James Jennings, Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings. And he says this about Acts 2. This is what's happening. Here's what I want you to hear. He says, this is a joining. This is a joining, to quote him. Unprecedented, unanticipated, unwanted, and yet complete joining. Those who gathered together in prayer asked for power. And they got power. They asked for the Spirit. They got the Spirit, but they did not ask for this, joining. The followers of Jesus are now being connected in every way that joins them to people in the most intimate way, a, a voice, a memory, a sound, a body, a land, a place. It's language. If you remember Acts 2, they could now understand each other's languages. It's language that runs through all these matters. They're joined. The sinew of existence is language, he says. My people, our language. To speak a language, uh, James Jennings says, is to speak a people. He goes on to say, some people, if you've ever learned a language, learn a language out of gut-wrenching determination. I, I tried to re-up my Spanish a year and a half or so ago when I was doing the missions work for our church. And I remember flying to Nicaragua, and I took four years of Spanish, two in high school, two in college, and I got that app, Duolingo. And um, <laughs> I think when I took the test, when you, take, when you do Duolingo, you take a little kind of entrance exam, and I, I think I was like 30% proficient. Pretty good, right? By the end of my time, I'm not kidding, by the end of my time in Nicaragua, I was down to 13%. I went down. So some people learn language, uh, Jennings says, out of gut-wrenching determination born out of necessity. That was, I needed to learn it, and I was doing terrible at it. Most, however, who enter, listen to this, who enter a lifetime of fluency. These people became fluent. Listen, they could understand each other in each other's native tongues. They became fluent. And those who become fluent do so because at some point in time they learn to love the language. They fall in love with the sounds. The language sounds beautiful to them. And if that love is complete, they fall in love with the people. Do you hear that? They, love, they come to love the people, the food, the faces, the, the songs, the poetry, the sadness, the happiness, the ambiguity, the truth. They love the place. Speak a language, Jennings says. Speak a people. And this is what God's doing in Acts 2. Speak a language, speak a people. God speaks people. And God, with all the urgency that is with the Holy Spirit, wants the disciples of this first church to speak people fluently to. God wants us to speak people. He wants you to look around this room and go, you have a story. You might speak English, doesn't matter. You might not, and that matters. And you have a story, and it, it's not my story exactly because you're a different person than I am. And God wants me to know 
the diversity of his body. So I need to know your story, where you're from, who you are, what makes you tick, where your pain is, where your joys are. And so, like I said, there's nothing more on our minds right now than this. We're so divided. Like this week, man, I don't even need to go into it. Our fears divide us. Our politics divide us. Our beliefs divide us. Our convictions divide us. Our, our, everything divides us. And God's desire is to heal, if you read Scripture, to heal deep divisions that exist in culture and in the world. And in my, from my experience, what Jennings writing, is writing there, what Acts 2 teaches, is that the church, our church, our little church on the corner of 123rd and Sandpoint Way here, Bethany Northeast, filled with the Spirit of God today, 2018, has the power, we do, we have the power to help bring about such radical and real healing to a divided world. Uh, we have a vision for it that transcends categories, transcends race, to heal this sort of breach that's been broken, as Paul says, to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation and renewal. Remember that place in 2 Corinthians 5? We are ambassadors of God's renewal. God's making an appeal through us to the world. And I want to exhort us toward that end. I do. Uh, toward greater fluency in each other's lives. Toward not just out of gut-wrenching determination like me going off to Nicaragua, but because we've fallen in love with each other first, and we've fallen in love with the people for whom Christ died second. That there are people that don't know that Christ died for them yet, and God's calling you, Acts 2, to just fall in love with them and their story and want, just deeply desire to great fluency to know who they are, born out of love. So to put some handles on that, because that's just kind of the vision for why we gather, okay? Um, let me tell you a little bit of how that might look. And this is really packed in verse 42, Acts 2.42, where it says these practices the church practiced, that the apostles, or the, the church gathered, um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking, or the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and, and, and prayers. Okay, we're going to unpack that verse a little bit and, uh, and see if there's some handles for, like, how it looked for us to gain fluency in each other's lives as we gather. So first, the apostles' teaching. It's kind of what we're doing right now. If I step back from here, they had a commitment uh, in the early church, and we have one today, to reading and reflecting on the Word of God. And so that's why we have Sunday school. That's why I'm doing what I do. But listen to this. I want to challenge us to do it a little different. Okay. So John Stott, who's a commentator as well on Acts, he says this about that verse. You might say their devotion to the apostles' teaching. You might say the Holy Spirit opened a school that day in Jerusalem, it's teachers of the apostles, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. This is kindergarten right now, okay? And I'm sorry if that just offended some of you, but I love the image of a kindergarten classroom. Some of you have kindergartners right now, um, and you're freaked out. Some of you have been in a kindergarten classroom before, and you're freaked out. Um, all of us, I hope, went, maybe we didn't, but went through kindergarten at some time or another, and we, we have memories of that or we don't. We've pushed them away. Um, but we know that if they're run well, they involve engagement, like relational engagement and tactile learning. Like, this doesn't go over well in a kindergarten classroom. Like, just yak, yak, yak. It involves uh, tactile, like kinesthetic, multisensory learning. That's what I'm told by teachers. Is that correct? Am I right? Yes. Okay, good. So physical, spiritual, emotional, not just head, but hands and heart and soul and feet. And I love that image of this being a kindergarten classroom in Jerusalem, early church, because that offers this holistic picture of what could happen for us. Um, so learning for them is connected to eating, for example. Worshiping and singing is connected to giving away possessions. Does this make sense to you? 
it's profoundly tactile. Like, so you're, you're talking to me about generosity, Jack, and now I'm going to ask you to give your jacket away. And you're talking to me about how, how we're expected to share hospitality, and we're going to have a meal. And we do this service once a year, but maybe a few times a year. It's okay. Somebody's phone has a beautiful ringtone. I love that. Um, so it's profoundly physical and tactile. And actually, they're patterning this after the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus' mode of teaching was rarely classroom didactic teaching. Like, he, he didn't give that many lectures. So you have the Sermon on the Mount, but they, they broke bread. 5,000 people were fed, right? And so more than a few examples of this in Jesus' teaching, while he's on the road, usually walking, telling stories, showing people how he did it by, by healing and talking about what those mean, uh, making sense of experiences that he's giving them, that they're having. Not just ideas, but experiences, real-life, everyday struggles and questions. So why do you think people would devote themselves to that kind of a community? Like in that day, why did 3,000 people say, yeah, I want to join that, that kind of a kindergarten experience? Well, scholars in the early church will tell you that this, the early Christians were living in a world where the old religious paradigms, all those competing religions, could not bear the freight of their, their meaning questions. So there's the plagues. There's all kinds of things that are happening. People are dying in the streets. And the catastrophes are so overwhelming, if you read early church history, that um, people were indifferent toward philosophy and religion. They were just like, eh. I mean, that's kind of like today, right? Eh. What does the church have to say to anything anymore about, about the, the things we're facing? In fact, the church is just a part of it. And, and so the early church breaks in on that scene and offers this context, a new context, where meaning is made. They're, they're saying, hey, we're going to actually open orphanages for children. This is where orphanages came from because they're being just thrown out in the streets and left for dead. We're going to welcome those kids in. We're going uh, to push for the, the equality of men and women in our, in our families, in our communities. Uh, and so they're, they're not just talking about these things. They're actually living them out. And, and that's the fruit of this devotion for them. People go to that because meaning is being made in the midst of suffering. And th- there's cynicism and indifference. And the church is providing an experience where that's, uh, it's, not the, it's not the case. They be, they're meaning makers. So what would it look like for us as a gathered community to be meaning makers? Like we gather on Sunday Every one of you has something, I'm sure, that's on your mind, a question for you, um, something that's a longing, uh, something that's bothering you, a question like, what does it mean for my son or daughter to be gay? Uh, a question like, why cancer? Like, why am I having to deal with this? Why depression? Uh, why dementia? Uh, why is my marriage falling apart? We've been, we've been working on this thing for so long, so hard. Why is my faith so dry? I read the Bible, I show up at church, and I'm getting nothing out of it. Why? Why school shootings? Like, why race-related violence? Why starvation? Why all these problems that are facing the world? Why can't God do something about that? So we all have a question that uh, is either major or, or just very personal. Why not bring those questions here? Because that's what the first church was doing. They're bringing the meaning questions into their devotion. They're gathered life on Sunday, and then ex- free to express those. Uh, you know, through lament, through confession, uh, through smaller gatherings. They, they, they had opportunities to do that. And so what I want to suggest as we're moving into 2018-19 is that we do some more of that. Uh, 
we're going to hopefully create some space in our gatherings in this coming year. We're going to have, uh, there's several people, Silas has taken point on this, we're going to have opportunities for people to express, not just me and Silas and Becca, to express some of their meaning questions. It might be through like, hey, this is what God's doing in my life. Here's a challenge I'm facing. Um, this, is, this is where I'm growing or where I'm being challenged to grow. I've seen the most profound uh, responses to worship when we have people invited to be on stage that aren't on staff and say, hey, this is what we're facing right now. And, and I'll have people come to me that week and say, yeah, we are too. And then they'll ask, how's that family doing? How are you doing? And that, that is what the first church did. That's a very best practice for us, okay, with profound implications. So that's the first one. The second is fellowship. Now we, uh, so the uh, apostles teaching the fellowship. A lot of us hear fellowship and we're like potluck. And you might like potlucks because I like lemon bars and they're amazing. You think of this, this is a fellowship hall and this, you're like underwhelmed, like totally underwhelmed. Fellowship is not like, ugh, they were, they were doing fellowship. Well, that's not what fellowship was in the first church. Um, fellowship in the first church, actually, the, the word literally uh, comes from, this is this word koinonia, and some of you have heard that before. But a related word to that is the word for generosity. So it's koinonokos. Um, and koinonokos, uh, as you look later in the passage, Acts 2, 44 and 45, uh, it, you know, this is what biblical fellowship is. They had everything in common in 244. They sold whatever they owned. They had basically a garage sale. And they pulled their resources, and then they give it away to everyone as they had a need. So you have a need. We've sold our stuff. We're going to meet your need. That's fellowship, okay? We've, we've taken fellowship to mean, like, like I said, lemon bars, potlucks, and there's a huge disconnect between those two. So why is that important? Why would it be important for us to reframe what fellowship looks like as we're gathering? Um, like, am I telling you that you need to downsize? Like, you got too much stuff? Sorry. I, I was at your house. You got to sell one of your TVs. You know, you have too many cars. No. Like, are you, am I saying that you can't make as much money as you're making? Like, it's not good. I've had somebody ask me recently, is it okay to make as much as I'm making? What's your view of money? What's the Bible's view of money? Because the Bible does have a view of money. Jesus talks more about money than he talks about sex or anything, really anything else. He cares about it. So he cares about that. Am I saying you need to give it all away? You've got to live a life of poverty, just like Jesus. Um, no. <laughs> so what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. Here's, here's why the idea of fellowship as generosity is so important for us. Um, what would it look like for us as we're gathered as a community to, uh, to look at the things we have? We've been given so much... Uh, the things that we have, and, and what are the things that me and my family can savor? Because God has given us things to savor. And then what does God invite us to share? And then what are we being called to sacrifice? Okay, So this involves certainly financial resources in the first church. Um, they had everything in common, so they're giving things away. But notice everything in common also includes, I mean, if you think about things to savor, to share, and to sacrifice, it could, be, it could include time. Time is probably... If I'm going to touch a nerve for us, the commodity <laughs> that we value more than any other thing, especially I'm, I'm talking to parents right now, limited time. Like, as your kids go back to school, somebody asked me how the week was. I was like, we hit full gas this week as our kids went back to school. I feel like there's no time left in the day. Um, and so how would it look for us as a church to, to relook at our time, the way we use our time, what, what we need to savor and, and protect as a family, and then to share and then to sacrifice. Um, it could be 
through serving. You know, we have lots of opportunities in the city to serve. It could be through celebration. Uh, I don't know how many people are here right now, 120, 130. That means there's 130 different birthdays in this room. And I'm guessing somebody, I mean, this happens to me occasionally because I don't like to celebrate my birthday that much, but somebody wasn't celebrated this year. It could be through like saying, hey, I want to celebrate. I want to be a good celebrator this year. We have young people in our church, uh, particularly one that now has a poetry reading this coming week. And, or we have Karen DeMasters has her play today, later this afternoon. What would it look like for us to, to come around, sacrifice some time, love to hang out and watch the Seahawks today? I'm going to go watch Karen. Uh, that, to bear witness to the work of God in her life. Um, this could be through sharing space. Bethany, has, Bethany Northeast has always shared space. <laughs> From day one at the high school to today, we're sharing space. And so what would it look like for us as a church to continue to do that in a way that's very generous, to, to invite not only Lake City Prez and Lifetime Learning Center and Hunger Intervention into our life together, but to then say to other people, other people out there, hey, we, wanna, we, have, we don't have that many chairs left, but we're going to find a way for you, to fellowship with you, to share space. could be relationship. People in this room and in our city are longing for relationship. Um, and there are relationships in this room I know you savor because I watch you talk. And, I, and it's, I, there's a few of you that I am really close to and then a number of you I don't know. How would it look for us to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice a little bit of those conversations with the people I know on Sundays and I'm going to commit to talking to people I don't know. It could be just saying, I'm going to engage in one new conversation every time I show up at church with somebody I don't know. That's fellowship. The idea of fellowship as generosity forces us to consider the implications of those kinds of things as we gather, and will have huge implications for our community. Okay? So that's the fellowship. And then f- the final thing here before we close down is the breaking of bread and prayers. I'm going to take these two together because they're very similar. Uh, most scholars tell you the breaking of bread is basically communion, okay? And that the prayers are these appointed times of prayer. So these Jewish prayer services. If you look at Acts 3, verse 1, there's these hours of prayer. They're going up to the temple to pray. And so regular appointed times of prayer. And so a lot of us look at these early Christians and we're like, they're just pseudo-monastics. You know, they're living this really carefully ordered life. Like I said, they're always together, super religious people. We're from Seattle. Like, that's not us. Uh, like, that's just too much, right? Actually, it's interesting. They're, look at where they're breaking bread, okay? Let's start there. So they're in the temple, for sure, but then they're in each other's homes. So what's that about? When you invite somebody into your home for a meal, um, at least at our house, I'm just going to say for our house, because I don't know everybody's situation here. Uh, I'm sure it's not this way everywhere. It's, it's not Martha Stewart, uh, it's, it's usually pretty messy. Um, I came home Wednesday this week. I had just gone for a, a bike ride, as I am prone to do. Came back, and our kitchen, which is like a little galley kitchen, was a hot mess. Like, uh, like Elizabeth and Marm were making this, like, it turned out to be this amazing pasta dinner. I ate way more than I should have. Um, they found this recipe on, a, on lines that are like the laptops on our counter, and like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so stressful. I had to like go sit on the back deck and just br- like do breathing exercises because it was just so, the food processor's out, there's dishes in the sink, there's cutting boards, so stress. Even though I knew this was going to be an amazing meal. And, and then we sit down, not just Wednesday, but most, most meals for us. 
It's the most, it's like the least we can do to get our kids just to be quiet for five seconds to pray and then 15 minutes just to talk about the day before they're out, right? So food is thrown, it's glasses are spilled. And when we're lucky enough to have people over, like who's going to pretend it's any different, right? It's the same way. We've had these, started having these neighborhood gatherings in our neighborhood. There's a few families uh, from our church here that live in the same neighborhood. And so we had this one a couple weekends ago and it was, it was awesome and a little crazy. Like, it was just imperfect, chaotic. Like I said, Martha Stewart's not putting it in her magazine. And that's the breaking of bread for them. They're in each other's homes, just doing life like that. I don't think they're kind of putting on a show. That, and the prayers are the same way. What I love about the book of Acts is it gives you a picture, as you read on, of their life of prayer. So they had these hours of prayer. Like, if you can imagine what Silas, when he prayed for the offering, or I pray during a service— kind of an appointed time of prayer. You know, that was a good prayer, Jack. But then you read through Acts, Acts chapter 4, for example. Peter and John are released from prison, and they return to this community, and, uh, and they pray. Uh, this actually, I think, may be later in Acts, but the, the community is gathered, and they're praying, and so Peter knocks on the door. Remember this story? And they come to the door. They think he's, they don't know who he is. So they just go back to praying. Like, they don't let him in. He's like, hey, I've been in jail. Like, could you let me in? I'm cold. Stephen's being stoned to death. What does he do? He prays. Um, in, in chapter 9 of Acts, uh, Peter's taken to the home of Dorcas, who's just died. What does he do? He, he kneels down and he prays. He's desperate. Uh, it's their first line of defense against Herod is prayer. When they need direction, they, they pray. When they're parting from each other, you know, they pray. Uh, they're immersed in prayer. It's just this haphazard, like desperate language that they use. And so the, the key here is, is that we're being given permission by Acts chapter 2 here to pray like that, just like they ate, spontaneously, responsively, out of a sense of need and desire. Uh, not just when somebody else is leading prayer, but not just appointed times, but when the Spirit stirs us. When the Spirit of God stirs us. This morning, uh, Libby Chapman, who's uh, down teaching one of our classrooms, led our, we do a little huddle. And um, so before our service, our volunteers who are leading in the morning get together and, and have a little devotion time. She led this, and really, really cool moment where she just said, I want to invite us to be thinking about um, times in our life when, when someone spoke identity over us. And, and so when somebody spoke into our life and said, hey, I see this in you, or you're, you're better than this, or there's beauty in you, and, and, so, and like think of those people. And then we had this time of prayer, and she just invited us as God brought that person to our mind to thank God for that person. And man, I had people flooding into my mind, people that called me forward, called me out, called me ahead. And that's what Acts 2 is inviting us to do, is the Spirit stirs us, uh, it might be interrupting what I'm doing. <laughs> it might be interrupting what somebody is. You might be talking to somebody and say, I, this, God is saying, I, I think I need to pray for you. And it's going to be weird because <laughs> people don't do that. Um, but that's what Acts 2 is inviting us to do, to be a little more responsive and spontaneous, to be bold in that kind of language. Um, and so those are the kind of the ways in which we might become a community that's uh, like I said in the first point here, that's deeply connected. So here's why, the last thing I want to say. Why all this? And then we're going to respond. Like, why do they gather? Uh, Why break bread? Why fellowship? Why pray? What's it all about? Well, verse 46 is really the crux. 
Um, it says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in homes. They ate with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Okay? That's actually why they were together all the time. We think praising God is just one of the things they did. They, it's actually why they were together, in order to praise God. Pra- praising, in other words, is like the engine for community. It's the dynamite. It's the thing that just makes this community blow up. Um, C.S. Lewis once had this very interesting thing to say about this, this very thing that I think is very germane to us. He says, I, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Listen to this. Because praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Praise doesn't just express it, but it completes it. It's its, its consummation. It, so it's not a compliment that lovers keep telling each other how beautiful they are. They, the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Um, and so, of course, he's being very profound, but there's something we all know in here, isn't it? Uh, when you find a piece of music you love, and or you find a piece of artwork, you see something, it's amazing. You see a film, you discover a new restaurant, you go on this amazing hike, you're on the summit. When you experience that, something beautiful, you taste it, you hear it, you see it, we all know from our experience that there's something about that beautiful thing that until we grab somebody and pull them aside and say, and we drop a gram on Instagram, whatever, say to the world, look, you got to see this. You have, to, you have to taste this. You have to come with me and hear this. Until we do that, the joy is incomplete. It's imperfect. The object demands to be praised. Everything, every object, every beautiful object demands to, get, to be praised. And the joy we get from that object is incomplete, will not be liberated until we've praised it. Um, and so that's true with music. That's true with meals. And that's true with people. It's true with people. Uh, do you know why they get together? Why we get together every Sunday? We, we, why we have to gather? Why I want you here on Sundays? Why I'm, I get agitated sometimes up here on Sundays when I'm trying to find the right words for what I want to say. There's no more beautiful object, no more joy than to praise a, a person who would choose to live a life for you and choose to, to, to die for you and choose to, to then live through you and express his life for you. Um, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And so we gather on Sunday because we found a beautiful story, a beautiful person, and that, that story, that person that is incomplete until it's expressed. We have to express it. So that when we fellowship, when we break bread, when we're, when we're together, the reason we're doing it is to be able to say, did you see it? Did you see God at work in our midst? Healing. Um, did you see God in the face of our children? Did you see God at work and bring hope to our dark time? Uh, did you see God in the creative world all around us? Those are just glimpses of God, but they're God. And that's why we gather. Joy is incomplete until we praise. And so here's what I want to invite us to do in response, okay? This morning, I want to invite our worship team forward. Here's kind of what we have to do. Uh, they're going to lead us in responding with worship. But um, really, this whole time has been worship. And so I want to invite us to, like Libby had us do this morning, meditate for a moment. Just going to have you uh, sit quietly where you are. Maybe you close your eyes. Where is God at work in the world around you? You, specifically you. Uh, What beauty do you see God in? Um, 
Where, where, what do you, where do you see God working right now? Um, uh, is it, it could be a person. It could be one of your children. It could be in a healing that you, you've received. Uh, it could be in a, a, a friendship. Uh, it could be in the work you're doing. You're doing very creative work right now, and you're excited about that. It, it could be in your faith. It, there's so many ways God's at work. Um, I want you to think about that. As God brings that to mind, where is God at work? Where, is it, where has there been beauty in the world around you? Uh, I want to invite you to just let God give you a word for that. It could be the name of a person. It just could be putting a, a, a word to the, the experience you're having. And then sort of popcorn style here, just from where we're seated, just for a few moments. Praise those things. Praise God for those things. Just call them out. As, you, as God gives you something on your mind and on your heart. And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for a place to praise you. A people to praise you with. We thank you for all the things that are praiseworthy in our lives. Every object, every thing is a thing that is worthy of praise, but nothing is more beautiful, God, than you. The life you lived, the the death you died um, so that we could live forever. Thank you, God. You are more beautiful than we can even um, express, and so that's why we now worship you. We thank you for the chance we have now to do so. Praying in Christ's name. Amen.